Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this day and this opportunity to look at your word. We ask your guidance and leadership as we look at this and, and see what you would have us to learn from this. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 45. We're going to look into one that was a very controversial chapter for many years because this is the chapter where Cyrus, King Cyrus is called by name. It was written about 174 years before Cyrus came into being. And so many, and because it so very clearly describes Cyrus's life, everybody said that this chapter had to have been written after Cyrus uh, was reigning. Uh, it's one of the things that the Dead Sea Scrolls helped us to establish is this was in existence before. So we're going to look at this in verse 1. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him, I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates that will not be shut. I will go before you to make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut asunder the bars of iron. I will give the, you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, which call you by name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, have I call, even called you by name. I have surnamed you, though you knew though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is none else. I formed the light and created darkness. I made peace and created evil. I, the Lord, do these things. Drop down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to them that strives with his maker. Let the pot potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Say to the, shall the clay say to him that fashioned it, what makes you or your work? He has no hands. Woe to him that says to his father, what, begot, what begets you? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask of me things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, command I you me. I have made the earth, I have created man upon it, I even my hands have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. All right, we're going to stop there, because there's quite a bit to start with. So this is one of these verses, Cyrus is mentioned a couple of times in the scriptures before he started. This is one of the oldest references to him. Jeremiah is also going to reference him about 80 years before his uh, coming out. Uh, so his is a little more subdued. Uh, but this one is long before Cyrus has existed. This nation at this time is not even a thought on the horizon. They are a small tribe out in the middle of nowhere. And Cyrus is not a Hebrew name. So he is named here. Uh, and it says, the Lord says to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I hold, have held. This is kind of interesting because we've talked about this. The right hand indicates the side of approval. 
So God says, I'm holding your right hand, Cyrus. I am approving of you. This is kind of a strange thing for a Jewish prophet to say that God is going to approve of a Gentile. All right? This is not what they believed. They thought they were separate. They thought they were totally better than the Gentiles. Many Jewish rabbis actually teach that the Gentiles were created and put on earth to go to hell. They had no hope for them. All right? Uh, so, and we see this in Jonah. When Jonah's told to go to Nineveh, the hated nation, he runs the other direction because, and what's he tell God in the end? I knew that you were just and loving and forgiving, and if they repented, you'd forgive them. And God, he's trying to remind God, they're Gentiles. You're not supposed to forgive them. They're Gentiles. And uh, we see this over and over in the Old Testament. The Jews really pulled away from God, which is kind of sad because when we were going through the Pentateuch, if you remember, we talked about Leviticus, and he kept saying, these statutes are for, your, for you and for those that will come to worship. God always intended for the Jews to be able to worship him, and the Jews walled, this, walled, walled it off. In Jesus' day, there was a great big sign at the court of the Gentiles before you get to the court of the women, which tells you how far the Gentiles were down. The women had more rights than the Gentiles. And it said, death to any, any non-Jew that passes this point. And women did not have a lot of rights in Jesus' day, and Gentiles had less rights than women did as far as the Jews were concerned. Now, they had trouble because the Romans were over them and all of that, but that's where Gentiles fell. And here... Isaiah is making a prophecy about a Gentile king. And says, he said, God's approved side, God is approving of him at his right hand. And it says, to subdue nations before him. If you know anything about the Persian Empire, we had the Assyrian Empire, they took up most of, most of northern Arabia and up into the uh, Baltic areas and stuff. And then you had the Babylonian Empire, and it took over all of the Middle East, all the way down to Egypt, all the way to India, up into the Baltic states, and then came Persia. And Persia covered all of that, and then some. Each, each empire got bigger. So he says, all of these nations are going to fall before you. And they did. The next big empire is going to be Greece, because it starts getting into Europe, and then Rome covers all of the then-known empire uh, world. So he says, and he says, I will loose the loins of kings. This idea of loosening their loins means that they, when you gathered up your garments on your things, you were getting ready for war or for running. He says, I'm going to put them at, at ease. They're not going to be running. They're not going to be fighting anymore. So this is what he says. I'm going to put peace. And during the time of, the, of Cyrus, the world pretty much had the, the Medo-Persian Empire was known as a time of peace over most of the world until it fell. And, but then but they had a peaceful time. And God says, I'm going to give you peace in your land. And besides that, he says, and to open before him the two leaved gates and the gates shall not be shut. Now you have to know the history on this one. When Cyrus took and conquered Babylon, remember we go to the story of David. David is in there. There's a handwriting on the wall. And 
the people are you know partying, they're having a great feast, they take and get the articles of the temple out and they start drinking and praising their God and all of a sudden they see the handwriting on the wall. They're in the middle of this party while they're being surrounded by the Medo-Persian army. They have that much confidence in their city to be protected. Their city was huge. But they managed to get in between the floodgates, which were made of bronze, in two halves, and somebody just happened to leave them open that night. Just as God said would happen. They came in under the gates, under the walls, opened the gates, took the city, while all their leaders and generals and the king were in a drunken party, so confident that they were going to win, that all the leaders were in the middle of a drunken party, and here is God, 175 years earlier saying, you're going to conquer, the gates are going to be left open for you, and they're not going to be shut. And we look at this and we go, wow, God, what do you know? And this whole chapter is about what God knows. The prophecies of God are all covered, you know, it's here when God says, these are what I'm doing. In verse 2 it says, I will go before you and make the crooked places straight or make the high places level in a, in a, in a in its actual language. And everywhere Cyrus went, he conquered. He knocked down cities, he conquered cities. Nothing seemed to stand against him. And he says, I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut asunder the bars of iron. This, we, most people believe, is talking about Babylon. Babylon had 25 brass gates on each side of the city. 100 brass gates in all. And on the brass gates, they were locked on the inside with bars of iron. So again, we see him being told, you're going to conquer the cities. And many of the cities back then had brass gates. Even though brass isn't the strongest metal in the world, they would make them out of wood. They would cover them with brass. They at least looked impressive. And then they would lock them up with, with iron, iron uh, posts. So here we see him saying, nothing's going to stand against you. And we see Babylon was known for its, for its gates. And people read then, they go, they, this was talking about Babylon. You know, it was a huge city, but 25 brass gates on each side of the city is a lot, of, a lot of gates. A lot more gates than most cities had, but it was a huge, huge city. There was a long ways between gates. Uh, if you remember when Jonah went to Nineveh, it said it was three days' journey from one side of the city to the other. And people walked pretty fast, so that means it was about a 30, 40 mile wide city. Nineveh was small compared to Babylon. All right? uh, Babylon was huge. If, you know, and it, had, it said the chariots would ride side by side around the, around the wall. It was you know, thick walls, very large, and in reality, that, you know, the king and, and generals of Babylon thought nobody's ever going to conquer us. You know, we have confidence in our city. Yeah. But when God moves against you, it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter how strong you are. And we've even seen this when Israel first became a nation back in 47. They were attacked by people who just had, you know, they stood no chance. They barely had an army. They barely had any weapons. And they defeated the combined forces of all the nations around them and was able to win. 
Now, most of that was miraculous. People talk, you, know, you hear the stories of entire squadrons surrendering to, to two and three Israeli soldiers because they saw an army behind them. We read about planes falling out of the sky, missiles just falling out of the sky. God did miraculous things, and when God is on your side, nothing can stand against you, and if God's against you, nothing you do or have is going to stand up against him, which is why we always want to have God on our side. We want to be repented. We want to be close to God, because if God's face turns against us, it's a miserable existence. And when we've lived in sin and we've kind of been in rebellion and backslidden, we know what that begins to be like. God says, well, I'm going to touch you a little bit. Oh, you're not paying attention? I'm going to touch you a little bit more. You're not paying attention? Let me make your life really miserable. <laughs> and if we, still, if we go to a certain point, you probably say, okay, it's time for you to come home. You're not, you're not repenting. I'm going to bring you home. But he will try hard to get us to repent. And that sometimes means making life pretty miserable. And... Here we see him promising Cyrus, you're going you're to win. And this is before Cyrus has even been known. Cyrus is going to conquer him. And I'm, all, I'm pretty sure that Daniel, because Cyrus promotes Daniel, I'm pretty sure Daniel brings out these books and says, hey, Cyrus, I want to show you this really wonderful book. It was written about 200 years ago. Your name's in it. Here, here's your story. And he looks at it. He's going to recognize these stories. He's going to recognize the, the gates of brass and the, and the bars of iron. He's going, to, he's going to remember that he marched his army under the gates through the floodgate, you know, the, two, the, the, the two-leaved uh, floodgate. He's going to say, all these people that have been conquered. Verse 3 says, I will give you the treasures of darkness. Is actually more a secret place, all right, out of the treasuries and everything. He says, I'm going to give you great treasures. And the hidden riches of the secret places. And Cyrus did get very rich. Just taking Babylon gets him rich. He gets to open up the storehouses there. And Babylon was a rich city. Just that one city is going to make him rich. And there's other cities for him to conquer. And then he comes in that you may know that I, the Lord, which called you by your name, am the God of Israel. And this is why did God bless him? so that he would know that God is God. And this is something that's very interesting, that God has a plan for everybody. And I keep bringing this up. It doesn't matter. He definitely has plans for us as his, as his children. He's got really big plans, very detailed plans, but he already has a plan in store for everybody else. They're his. He created them. He has a plan. He knows what they're going to do. He knows how they're going to react. And he's out to show himself to them. And he says, Cyrus, I'm going to give you all of this so that you will know that I am God. And you know, this is the blessing he does for us. He works in our lives even before we're saved so that we know that he is God. <laughs> and it's not the first time. Very few people, if any, ever respond to God the first time they hear about him. It's just not... It's against, you know, it's against our thoughts. You know, what, what are you talking about, a God that cares for me? You know, what, what, what is this? Because most of the gods in all the different religions don't care about their people. They don't love them. If you do enough good for them and please them, they'll be, they'll be happy to have you around, but you've got to perform. And God says, no, I love you. You can't perform enough for me. And here he's telling Cyrus, I'm giving you all this. Cyrus, you think you were special? I gave this all to you. 
so that you would know that I am God. And when we read the book of Daniel, we see that Cyrus seems to be a believer in Christ. Not quite as strong as, as Nebuchadnezzar was when he got, uh, when he followed God and then he became a be- you know, given the mind of a beast and, and spent a year in, as, you know, in, uh, in insanity. <laughs> and God gave him back his kingdom. And he gives a, he's the only writer in the Bible that is a, a pagan king that has a chapter in the Bible that he wrote where he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, and he gives this story and gives all the glory and praise to God. Here we see Cyrus being told, I'm giving you all this stuff, Cyrus. It's not you. It's not you. When we see people who get what they think they want, it never satisfies. Whether it's, yeah, Alexander the Great who conquers the, you know, conquers the world, somebody who conquers it in business you know, and takes over in business, has lots of money, makes it to the top of the stardom in, in acting or singing or, or sports, and they go, okay, I got what I wanted, and I'm no happier now than I was when I started. Solomon. Solomon. So, yep, many times, and Solomon actually had it many times over. Yeah. You know, and he says, it's all empty. Everything is empty. Cyrus doesn't seem to do this from what we see. And he says, verse 4, For Jacob my servant's sake and Israel my elect, I have even called you by name. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. God says, I've given you a name. I've, I've called you by my name, even though you don't know me. And who, who is it for? For Israel. He says, I did it for Israel. Not your sake, not your sake, Cyrus. I didn't do it. But this idea that he gave, he says, I gave you your name. Matter of fact, he says, you know, when we look at it, right from the very beginning of the book, he gave him the name. He used the name long before it was, you know, going to be used. And I'm sure his parents didn't, didn't read the book of Isaiah when they named him. They weren't thinking about the book of Isaiah. They weren't thinking about their son taking over the world. They gave him the name Cyrus. Just happened to be who God said, and God just happened to give preordained knowledge of everything that was going to happen. And he told Cyrus, it was for my people's sake that I did this. Not because you're special, not because you're great. And this is something we all really have to get into our mind. God does not use anybody because they're something. Matter of fact, if they think they're something, they're probably not going to get used. Because God's going to say, I will get the glory. I am going to be the one that stands up and gets the glory on this. And it says in verse 6, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you did not know me. So again, he says, you didn't know me and I strengthened you. I'm the one. I'm, I'm God. And over and over again, I am the only God. Now, Cyrus was not a monotheistic person. He, he grew up in a world of many gods. And so he is not, so hearing this, he's hearing, oh, there's only one God. Now, in our day and age, we really don't understand how strange that seems to these people that grew up on more, God, more than one God. Oh, what, what God do you follow? I follow the one and only God. Okay, what's wrong with you? What's, what about all the other gods? And we hear it even in our day and age. You know, how can you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life? No one comes to the Father except by Jesus. How, how bigoted, how, how narrow-minded, yes. How beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's what God says. He is the only one, and I'm going to believe in him. 
This has been the battle from time, beginnings of time. All right? When Satan came to Eve, he said, Eat of this fruit and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Even more importantly, he was saying, You can be God. So right there from the very beginning, the first temptation of mankind was to be God. That, you know, there's not just one God, you can all be God. By the time of the noatic deluge, the flood, people were doing what was right in their own eyes. They're God, they're gonna do things their way. They weren't following God. After the flood, very shortly after the flood, we get Nimrod rising up. Nimrod is the founder of all of the false religions. Against Nimrod stood Eber. And Eber was the follower of God, and he is the father of the Hebrew peoples, all the Hebrew peoples that are the followers of the one God that, that followed the way of Eber. And he had Nimrod. He only had 36 gods. He had, he had a small amount of gods compared to some of the religions out there. He had a pantheon of 36 gods. And he really pushed for uh, human sacrifices and, and rejecting God and, and all of the different religious organizations that went out. So all of our false stuff goes back to that Nimrod, who was very much in the hand of Satan. And he set up a kingdom in Babylon. And Babylon has been the seat of anti-God place ever since. The Babylon that still exists today, that in the Revelation says will be the seat of the government governing powers when Satan rules for seven years, Satan will rule once he gets once he tricks Israel and, and he'll rule in Babylon, which is his city. So Babylon is still a city today. Still a city today. So when they talk about it being rebuilt, they're talking about it being rebuilt in power. Rebuilt in power. Yeah, it is still in existence. It's not very powerful at the moment. It's getting more powerful. That whole Iran, Iraq area is becoming more and more powerful. And that's all the Persian Babylonian empire is in that area. And these empires that had existed are coming back into power. And by the time we get to Revelation, they will be back in power. And this is where we're at right now. These places are trying to come back in power. The whole Muslim world is that area. That's the center of their, their strength and their power. Right in Babylon. Right where it's mystery Babylon, it tells us in, in Revelation. And it's going to rise up. And Satan is going to rule from that area. And so we see all of these things coming together. Cyrus is a little tender-hearted toward one God, obviously, and probably makes a decision on it. Nebuchadnezzar did. Now, his son and his grandson did not follow his example. They turned back to the, all the gods of Babylon. Cyrus seems to be, when we read about him, a follower of one God. It's a small, you know, it's not bluntly brought out. Nebuchadnezzar, we have a testimony of. All right. Um, but here he's saying, God is telling him, I am the one God. I'm the only God. Verse 6, that you may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. Okay? God's trying to make a point here. Uh, you know, just in case you forgot the other two times, and I'm going to tell you again, and this isn't the last time in this chapter that God's going to say that. Uh, I'm the only one, and beside me there aren't any others. And this time he goes from the, north, you know, from the east to the west. 
You keep going. There's no place else that you can get away from God. I am the only God. And by the way, I am the only God. <laughs> this is something that sometimes I think that even we as Christians tend to forget sometimes. You know, not ones we're really following closely, but these people, there are so many Christians out there, or so they say they're Christians, that they don't seem to know that there's only one God. There's only one way. These would be the ones in churches that say, well, you know, God is really nice and loving. You know, he'll, he'll take everybody. You know, it's no big deal. All religions are the same anyway. They all look at the same God. We got a planet for you in the future. <laughs> yeah, in the wrong, wrong, wrong uh, cult. But we see this over and over again as we look at this, that God says, I am the one. And he says, Cyrus, I had a plan for you, and it's to bless my people. God says, I've got a plan. This is something we've got to remember. God has a plan. He is sovereign because he is God. And one of the things I love is the more we can recognize that God is sovereign, the greater our peace will be. Because if God is in charge of everything and nothing happens to me without him being in, in the midst of it and I truly believe it, then no matter what happens to me, I know I'm in the middle of his plan and I can just have peace. I may not like what he's allowing to happen to me, but I should have peace and go, okay, God, I'm going to accept because you've desired this. You've put it in my, you've put it in my path. And but it does make it a lot easier. That is my strong point. When I, when I sit back and go, God, I just don't understand what's going on, but you're in charge. You, you have promised that all things are good. You are a good God. You have, you have made promises to us that you're going to keep us. Nothing comes our way without your allowing it. So I'm just going to rest in what's allowing you to come. Now, I don't always do it perfectly. Nobody does. But I do mostly believe that this is true, and it makes me have a lot of peacefulness no matter what happens. All right, God, lost my job. Uh, you know, this happened. Uh, somebody died, and somebody's saying bad things about me, and all this stuff. Okay, God, you're, you're still in control. I'm going to trust you. It's going to be for good. And even if we truly believe that God is in control and he is sovereign, the flesh is still going to pop up if we're not careful. And that's why we have to stay in his word. We have to stay in fellowship with God's people and in fellowship with God because just knowing the truth isn't going to hold us in the long run. But it is something that's interesting as we look at things that God cares so much for us. And if we stay focused on him, we can stay moving forward. And here we see that God's telling him all these things. In verse 7 it says, I formed the light, or I fashioned the light. I have created darkness. And darkness here is the whole idea of obscurity. So God says, I have given some obscurity. I make peace. And then it says, I create evil. Now evil here is, is uh, adversity and distrust. It is not the same word as just straight evil. God allows hard things in our life. And this is something we have to recognize as Christians. When, when hard things happen in my life, it's there for one reason, to make me trust God more. When I don't trust God, I'm going to fall apart. Job, for a long time, was trusting God. When all those things happened to him, 
He, you know, I'm, he's trusting God. Wife comes along, you know, curse God and die. Get it all over with, Job. And he goes, well, we take, you know, good and not bad. You know, Job had a little of trouble after his wife already had set the stage, and then he had a lot of trouble when four friends came along to help him. Job, you're really bad. You, deserve, you must deserve this. You need to repent. And hammered him for however long. It doesn't really tell us how long they hammered him with this. You're really bad. You, you know, what did you do to deserve this? You know, you need to repent. And when you have friends like that, you're going to have a hard time. This is why we need good, godly friends that are going to support us and lift us up and pray for us. Their, their friend, his friend should have just come in and go, Job, we're so sorry. What can we do? You know, let's just cry. You know, let's, let's just cry with you. You know, God, God is still out there. God is still sovereign. But that's not the advice they gave him. You know, not, not what they said to him. And so we see here that God says that he does this. He says... And then he ends that verse at seven with, I am the, I, the Lord, do all these things. In other words, I am in control. So he's saying again, I'm in control. Over and over, God says, I'm the one. Nobody else out there, nobody else. And this is why when I talk to Christians who think that Satan is so much stronger than he is, Satan is a created being that is totally subject to God, and as Job tells us, he has to ask God for permission to make life miserable on people. And now, sometimes we wish that God would give him a little less permission to make life miserable, but he still has to go before God. And if he didn't, he'd kill all of humanity because he hates humanity because we're created in the image of God, and he doesn't want us going into eternity with God. The angels aren't Nope, they never, no place in the Bible is to tell us that they were created in his image. Matter of fact, we will rule over angels. We do not become angels. We are going to be the bride of Christ. We will rule over angels. So we have a higher position after this world. In this world, we have a higher position, but as Paul said, we are the child under the care of the of the servants and this is true even in the south you know in the south where we had you know such terrible slavery the children were usually raised by a a black uh housekeeper or nanny or possibly a a, a black uh, slave that was the caretaker of the children and the girls would have stayed under the nanny at some point the boys would have been put under the care of the the black man to be learning how to hunt and ride and and do work and, until a certain point when they became master of the home. And then all of a sudden those roles changed. And so right now we are under the care of the angels. They watch us, they, they protect us. The demons are trying to destroy us, but, <laughs> but that's where we're at right now. We are under the care of the angels. But at some point when we die and get our glorified body, we will be the ruler over the angels. So we have a swapping coming up. Well, technically, he's going to be, he's going to be in the lake of fire, so. But we will be above him. And he was the archangel. He was the number one archangel before he got too proud. And we don't know what caused his pride. We don't know where it was. Many people believe it was the creation of man that, that brought him to his, to his pinnacle. That, uh, I think it happened before that, but 
you can't prove it by the Bible. The Bible is silent as to when exactly he made his, made his fall. Um, so, then in verse 8 it says, Drop down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let, the, let them bring forth salvation. Let the righteous spring forth together. I, the Lord, have created it. So he says, I've created the good. I have created the blessings. I have created the righteousness. And this is very important for us. We do not bring anything to God. Even when we get saved, we don't really bring anything to him. It's his gift that we accept. And then he gives us all kinds of blessings because we accept his gift. God's plan is so wonderful. God died for me, hands me a gift, and then promotes me to be above the angels and the bride of Christ and will rule for all of eternity. It's just an amazing thought. And what did I do? Really nothing. I just said, yes, I'll take your gift. I'll take that gift, sure. God does it. He does all of it. And this is the sad thing I see when, when people will will believe that you can lose your salvation or you can do something so bad that God's going to reject you. They don't really fully understand every bit of it's from God. All of my salvation is from God. I didn't do anything to deserve it. And I definitely can't do anything to keep it. And God says, I created it. I do it. And, you know, one of the wonderful things that I love is that God does it. I don't have to please him. He has, he has made me righteous. He has declared me righteous. I accept Jesus Christ, and he says, okay, your sin is under the blood of Jesus Christ. You now have the righteousness of Jesus Christ on you, and I see you as perfect. Wow, what a difference that makes. Breastplate of righteousness. Huh? Our breastplate of righteousness. Which is Jesus. The entire armor of God is Jesus. He's the helmet of salvation because he is our salvation. He's the breastplate of righteousness because he is our righteousness. He is the girdle of truth because he is truth. He's the, the, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel because he is the gospel. He is the shield of faith. He is the sword of the spirit that we have. So when Paul is saying put on the full armor of God, he says put on Jesus Christ. Oh, wow. That makes a lot easier. Put on Jesus Christ. And that's done for, to us the moment we're saved. I have trouble sometimes when people talk about putting on the armor of God every day. Because even in that verse, it's talking about do it once and it stays forever. And, you know, it's, and I know what they're trying to do, and I'm not going to, you know, the, the application they're doing, I understand. Consciously think about putting Jesus on every day and, and living into him. But again, it starts developing this idea of I work to keep my salvation instead of I am saved, I am clothed in Christ, and I stay clothed in Christ. And God says, there's my son, there's my daughter. Aren't they perfect? Aren't they perfect? Look, look at those, you know, almost like the doling grandparents, you know, that's my grandchild, that's a perfect grandchild. Yeah, I know they act up once in a while, but that's my perfect grandchild. You know, God looks at us, and he does it correctly because we're clothed in Christ. We have the righteousness of Christ that we abide in. And it's a wonderful place to be. I don't have to earn his forgiveness. I don't have to earn his goodness. I don't have to do anything except turn my life over to Christ and God. And he does all the work. He creates it. He does the righteousness. He has created it. <laughs> then he goes into this little 
thing that doesn't seem to fit, but it is a woe. Woe to them that strive with his maker. And this is something that we definitely want to make sure that we do not try to fight against God. If we strive against God, we'll, we'll lose. Makes you miserable. <laughs> he makes you miserable. The world strives against him. This is more to the world. Don't strive against God. We may drift off as a Christian in, into striving and God will you know, chastise us. But God is going to let people know it's a miserable life to be against him. Job's friends had to have God, have Job, God told Job, you pray for them because they deserve judgment and I'm ready to bring it to them, but Job, you pray for them. You bring them back to where they're back into fellowship. Our job as Christians is to bring people into fellowship, not to strive against them, not to make them miserable, not to say, I'm so glad you got what you deserve. We love them. We're kind to them. We show the mercies of God to them and bring the gospel to them and show them love and kindness. My goal is not to see anybody go to hell. I do not get excited when somebody gets what they deserve. I know that that's what they deserve. I know that's probably what's going to bring them to Christ, hopefully. But I am not saying, oh, I'm so glad you got what you deserve. It's just not my heart to do that. Because if I got what I deserved, I would be in hell. Matter of fact, if I got what I deserved and God hadn't come into my life, I'd probably be in prison because of how bad my temper was because I know how bad it was. I know I would have killed somebody eventually. Uh, you know, and I know what God has brought me from, and I don't want to see anybody get what they deserve. And I hate it when people say, I just want what I deserve. No, you don't want what you deserve. You, know, you don't even know what you deserve. You cannot be saying that statement, and I really don't like it when I hear Christians say something like that. I just, I've been doing good things. I want what I deserve. No, you don't want what you want deserve. You want the grace of God and the mercy of God. You do not want what you deserve because you'd end up in hell. Yeah, because I don't care how much good you do, you're still a sinner. Yep. And then he gives this little poetry here. He says, would you let the potshar strive with the other potshars of the earth? In other words, the clay. The clay that the, the, is being molded into it. Will the clay say to the say to him that fashions it, what are you making me? What, what is your work? In other words, it has no opinion. And God's saying, we're clay. If he wants to use us for a vessel of dishonor, then that's what we're going to be doing. If he wants us to die, that's what we're going to do. And it's his right to do it. If he wants to give us great blessings and wealth, it's his right to do it. If he wants to make us have a hard life all through this world to serve him, that's his right. He is the creator. He is the ruler. And this is what this whole section says. I am God. I have create, created it. I have made it. I have done it. And he's saying here, who are you to speak against me? You know, are you going to strive against God? God, I just don't understand. Why are you doing this? And I've done it myself. God, I just don't understand. I'm trying hard nowadays to just say, God, I don't understand it, but you're, you're in control. You've promised things are for good. Help me just have peace with it. Because our flesh isn't going to like to be, be given a hard time. But why is God giving us a hard time? To get rid of our flesh? That's all he's trying to do is get rid of our flesh and let us see how evil our flesh is. 
And this is one thing, I, the more I walk with God, the more I see how evil my, my heart and my flesh is, and the more I see how evil I was in the past, which, you know, when people look at me, they go, well, you want that evil? I'm going, you don't even begin to know. I'm, I'm really beginning to see how evil. How could I have accepted some of the things I accepted? How could I have done some of the things I've done? And yes, by the world standards, maybe they weren't all that bad, but by God's standard of perfection, they were awful. And all of us have something in our lives and something in our lives today. No matter where we came from, where we are today is not where God wants us to end up. And he's saying, see how bad that is? You know, shine up against my, my perfect righteousness and see how, how bad your righteousness looks. And again, that's why I have problems with people who say, you know, well, I gotta do, I gotta please God. I gotta do enough good to, to keep God. I got, if I don't do enough good, I'm gonna lose my salvation because I've gotta do something to keep it. All our righteousness is filthy rags. No matter how long I've worked with, walked with God, my righteousness doesn't mean a thing. It must be God's righteousness that stands up. It must be God who's presented to people. Because if it's me, it's gonna be flawed. Everything we do is tainted by the flesh. If I do good in the flesh, I'm usually looking for something in return. Recognition, uh, you know, getting it back, you know, hey, I, I gave this person money, God, I'm, I'm, waiting for, I'm waiting for you to give it back to me. And God says, well, I had blessings for you, but if all you want is the money, here you go. You can have your money back. If that's all it was, was for you to get money back, here it is. Here's your money back. Here's your honor back. Here's your, here's your reputation. But if we're serving God, riches in heaven, and he does things on earth. You know, we've got the riches in heaven, definitely, but so many times he does bless us on this world. But we need to be looking for it and focused on God. Then he goes, Word to him that asks his father, Why did you beget me? <laughs> Why did you give me birth or to his mother? Why did you bring me forth? Now, this goes back to Job's, Job's statement. Things were so bad for him. He says, I wish the day that I was born that my parents had broken my neck because things are so bad and nothing is good. He goes, I bewail the day when they say that a child, your male child has been born. This is what he's saying. You know, right here he's saying, why would somebody go to their parents and say, why did you give birth to me? You know, your parents hopefully enjoyed having you. <laughs> Not, not necessarily true in our day. Uh, there's a lot of people who don't like having their kids. And just because of where we're at in this world, do we, you know, many people look at kids as being a total nuisance in their life. And especially when they delay having children for a long time, because they get used to the lifestyle of going out all the time or going out to, to vacations and just doing what they want. And when they have spent you know, 10, 20, 30 years without a kid, and all of a sudden, a kid comes along. Hey, kid, you're cramping my style. You know, it's, and that's why God says children are a blessing. You know, why would you go to your parents and ask, why did you, why did you give birth to me? And that's pretty miserable. If you're doing that, you're in a pretty miserable state of affairs. <laughs> and this is what he's saying, don't do that. He says, verse 11, Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker, ask of me things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, command you me. So he says, ask me the future. God oftentimes in the Bible says, you want proof that I'm God? 
I'm going to tell you what's going to come. And in several places he says, go to your idols and go out and ask them to tell you what's going to happen. See if they can tell you accurately what's going to happen. And he's saying right here, I've done it. Uh, Cyrus is going to be my deliverance. Just wait for him to get here and you're going to see Cyrus deliver Israel. And over and over, especially in the book of Isaiah, he says, God says, I tell the future, therefore I am proving I am God. Go out and find somebody who accurately tells the future to prove that they are God. And in Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Exodus, it says, if a prophet speaks and their prophecy does not come from God, uh, come, come true, they are a false prophet, kill them. You know, God says, There's, you're going to see these prophecies come true, and if they're not, they're speaking lies, they're not speaking for me. But here we're seeing this whole thing that God says, I am God. I am doing all of these things. We're going to have to stop here. We're not... We're not quite done yet, but we're going to stop at verse 11 and close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that you are God. We thank you that you are in control of all that happens. Lord, help us always to keep in mind that you are God, that you have a gift for all of us, and that you love us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.